you're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and uh, this week we want to deal with uh, a very important issue, something we haven't really fleshed out um, thoroughly on the podcast here yet, and so I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, Creation and predation, if you've seen the title. Creation and predation, what does the Bible teach? One of the things that... um, secularists and and, and even many Christians are quick to point out is that we sure don't live in a perfect world. By the way, we're quick to point this out and admit this as well. We sure don't live in a perfect world. However, we do contend that in the very beginning, a perfect world was created. And, and, And as a matter of fact, we ought to use uh, the biblical terminology there, which is very good. The word's very good, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about that, talk about the Hebrew and and what that means as we go through this study a little bit today. Now, in realizing that we don't live in a perfect world, probably the Orthodox Christian response to this question throughout the ages has been uh, that of the fall. Well, yeah, we, we realize, in fact, that this is not a perfect world. And the reason that we can say that it's not is because we have to have a thorough understanding of the original creation, a thorough understanding of what the Bible teaches about the fall, and what we're to do and how we're... Uh, to respond kind of in light of what the Bible teaches about that. What's really interesting here is I think that, and again, I want to remain respectful um, because I know I have some people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, people who I would consider friends, who uh, hold to different views of Genesis. And and I I want to make, uh, especially for those people, I want to, to make this view persuasive. I don't want to be dogmatic in the sense of just, well, this is, you have to listen to me because this is my opinion on, on what the Bible says in this particular uh, area of Scripture. Um, I, I, so I want to be careful about that. But at the same time, I think we have to realize that we completely lose our ability to to connect sin and and. And suffering, that the, the, even the natural and the moral evil that we find in our world, I, I think if we lose the fall as an explanation to that, then we pretty much lose the historic Christian answer to the problem of pain, to the problem of of suffering. Now, sure, in uh, recent days and uh, recent, you know, even centuries, there have been different philosophers to come up with different ways of understanding this, uh, different uh, solutions, per se, to the problems of evil and the problems of of suffering. Of course, one of the latest um, ways that this is answered is akin to kind of the moral argument for God's existence. In other words, uh, somebody questions um, maybe why God did something or, or why the world is the way that it is, and the first thing that we tend to get them to do as 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 philosophically astute uh, apologists is to admit that there is evil in the world. And once they've admitted that there is evil in the world, they have also admitted that there is a standard of goodness 
beyond themselves, something that transcends themselves, and we attach that, or in philosophical terms, we ground that morality, that ultimate goodness in God as the um, uh, maximally great being. Now, that is a good answer. There is no, and I realize there are rebuttals to this about evolutionary explanations for morality. We'll probably talk about that sometime here on the podcast. But look, I've done a lot of research on this, and I'm telling you there, there is no sufficient answer for the grounding of objective moral values outside of God. And by the way, the, the, the tactic has shifted here. It used to be to say that there are no objective moral values. There are only relative moral values. What's good for me might not be good for you, and we just have to live with that. But once um, apologists and, and Christian philosophers kind of uh, jumped on that and said, now, wait a minute, you can't have your cake here and eat it too. You can't have, you can't have relativism and complain about God being evil or, or charge God of, of, of immorality uh, and complain about death and suffering and pain in the world. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And so in light of that... Um, Folks have started arguing, and this is especially big with the new atheists, for some kind of objective morality that is grounded in um, evolutionary biology. Now, this is an extraordinarily post-hoc explanation and doesn't even do the job, to be honest with you. It just doesn't. It actually smuggles in a definition of goodness in order to claim that human prosperity um, is a good thing. And it uses good in the different sense of the term. There's lots there. We could do a whole podcast on that. But the point being that it, 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 objective morality, if that is going to be um, the case, if we're going to affirm objective morality, then the best, the inference to the best explanation for grounding that morality is in God. Now, is that a good philosophical answer to the problem of evil and suffering and death? Yes, it is. Is that a biblically supported answer? Yes. Yes, it is. The Bible grounds objective morality in God. The Bible grounds morality itself in God. And, of course, the philosophical nature of a maximally great being would be that this being is the highest good, the summum bonum. Now, here's a question, though. Is that the Bible's ultimate answer to the problem of evil and suffering? Does the Bible support that explanation of things? Yes. But is that what the Bible actually teaches is the, is the thing? In other words, does that, does that actually encompass the whole story? No, 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 no. See, the Bible teaches that in the beginning was a perfectly very good creation. And that creation was cursed. Now, we can't just come in now and say, okay, well, maybe God just made bad things worse. Or maybe the standard of good changed between pre-fall and, and, and post-fall. Um, 
any other of these sorts of explanations. And we're going to dive into some of this. Uh, that, that's not going to work. It's not going to work because the Bible specifically takes goes through great lengths to describe what is meant by the fall, what implications there were on the entirety of creation from the fall. And then what this means for views contrary to the young age view of Genesis. By the way, uh, this is an argument that's not often um, developed. It's usually very quickly uh, uh, dismissed in passing. Somebody says, well, God's very good creation in the beginning would not um, suffice to uh, to coexist with the the death and suffering of the millions of years. And we kind of leave it at that. We, we don't really dive into a um, a full-on biblical understanding of this doctrine. As, as a matter of fact, sometimes we might even reference verses like Romans 5.12, for example, it, it, just in passing, just to give it really quick. Um, and it never really seems to satisfy, at least not me. Uh, even though that it's what I hold to, I, I just don't feel like very many people do a great job of explaining it. So we're going to take this whole lesson to speak about this. And I haven't decided what we're going to do next week yet. Next week, uh, depending on how this goes, may be a continuation of this week. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but we're going to dive into this issue. Now, um, let me kind of... Uh, I'll preface this a little bit. I've been reading a book um, by Dr. Jonathan um, uh, Sarfati. Okay, he is with Creation Ministries International (CMI). Uh, he's Australian, but he's actually out of the uh, United States office. Um, I've been reading. By the way, he's an excellent, excellent writer and um, an excellent scientist as well. And he uh, probably has given this particular issue one of the best treatments of it that, that I've seen anywhere. And so I'm I'm using a lot of his material here. So when I'm quoting him, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. Um but I just want you to know that I'm quoting him out of his book that I'm reading. I want to say this was a 2004 book. It's been out for a while, uh, but I'm just now reading it. It's actually called Refuting, um, Refuting, excuse me, um, Compromise. Refuting Compromise. And what it does is directly addresses the claims of um, Hugh Ross and the Reasons to Believe organization. Now, again, let me just say up front that um, many of my listeners here read Hugh Ross, um, are fans of Hugh Ross. And so uh, I, I want to say to you, especially if you're here listening, uh, welcome aboard. Uh, I, I, you know, the purpose of this podcast is not to not to critically evaluate other views, necessarily. So, uh, to be honest, I'm not going to spend any time, uh, maybe I'll mention one or two things here in passing, but on, on this particular lesson, I'm not going to spend any time dealing with Ross's claims to this issue I, I, and, and the response to them. I'm simply using this to, to bolster the biblical uh, definitions and understanding of of this view. I think it's a helpful book. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, just, just to kind of put it in perspective, though. I mean, if you're a Ross uh, supporter, you might want to pick this book up. Um, and this is all I'm going to say about this, but in my opinion, now, you can agree or not, in my opinion, and I think he does it gracefully, 
much of the beginning of the book is dedicated to um, to uh, Sarfati's commitment to uh, Ross as a Christian brother, and certainly not to disparage him in any way or to defame him. He does his best, I think, to accurately represent what Ross teaches and poke holes in it. But I'm going to just go ahead and say, um, this book decimates almost all of Ross's teaching on these issues. Um, I mean, absolutely just decimates it. It, 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 and I'm, I'm telling you, it's not subjective opinion. It's using accurate biblical interpretation, turning claims on its head, looking at what, uh, what theologians have held throughout church history. Uh, I mean, he even goes through and pretty much shows where every one of, of of the church fathers that Ross cites where his own opinion actually held something closer to the young earth view. I, I mean, uh, and again, this is all I'm going to say about it. But but look, if you're if you're interested in the truth and you're not just interested in following a certain a crowd of people, you're not interested in uh, going along with the flow of what uh, just anyone says, you're going to want to pick this book up, I think. It, it's very good, Refuting Compromise, and it directly addresses these claims of, of Hugh Ross and, uh, and RTB and other of those kinds of supporters. And done in a graceful way, but done in a way certainly to show that if we're going to be biblical, we're going to have to commit to what the Bible says. And it's not it's not a, you know, quote, that's your interpretation kind of thing here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that there is no other viable interpretation um, that makes sense of all of the biblical data and provides a coherent answer uh, to, to these ultimate questions. Uh, there just doesn't seem to be any, any question uh, on this. And he does. Uh, he he spends a lot of time dealing with even the Big Bang, showing some some big issues with that. Quotes from secular astronomers and astrophysicists that that bolster uh, his arguments. And so, look, um, I, I highly encourage you to get this book and check it out. Um, again, refuting compromise by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. With that said, though, uh, we're are, we're going to take a look at this from the biblical angle. Um, Using some of the flow of thought that that Sarfati offered in his work, and um, pull a couple quotes from there as well. But basically, we just want to see what does the Bible actually teach about this. What does the Bible teach us about creation and predation? Can we um, can we hope to get a solid understanding of what this looks like? Well, I think we can. So first of all, does the issue even matter? Does it really matter? Could we? Um, could we be okay with the secular uh, interpretation of earth history and um, and still have a solid biblical answer for uh, the uh, for the predation that we find in nature today um, and have a coherent answer does this thing matter does it matter what we believe about this I'm gonna say that yes it does I want to emphatically say that how we answer this question is, going to have a lot to do with how we view the Bible as a whole and how we respond to these questions that people ask us on a daily basis about how we can serve a loving, uh, caring God amidst all the death and pain and, and suffering that we find in 
this world. And I, I want to say that this issue specifically affects the creation, the fall, even the flood account, and the restoration. Those are the four areas we want to deal with. The creation, uh, the fall, the flood, and the restoration. In fact, I want to say one more thing. In, 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 and I want to qualify this and be careful how I word this. But it even affects salvation. And get, get my thought here. It, it doesn't um, obviously have anything to do accepting this view with you being saved. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that the truth of, of what is the matter of fact here, whatever we believe about it, that doesn't matter. But the fact of what the Bible teaches on this issue is important to salvation. If atonement for sin is by the blood. It follows that the blood sacrifice is a necessary consequence of sin. And if you don't get that, that flow of reasoning, hopefully you will by the time we're done here. The blood sacrifice is a necessary consequence for sin. We're going to see that in the beginning of Genesis. Now, of course, we realize something, all right? It does not mean that the blood of animals can atone for sin. Again, that's not the argument either. Let's be careful here. But the connection is unavoidable. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is not for uh, possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Bulls and goats cannot do it. But as we know, the uh, Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the uh, New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Okay, so... We need to understand that this is typological. There is a certain connection there. And in order for the connection to hold true, we're going to have to understand that sacrifice is the consequence for sin. Blood sacrifice is the consequence for sin. Christ's blood is the consequence, is the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. The blood of bulls and goats is not the sacrifice for our sin or the atonement for our sin, but it is typological of that. It is the Old Testament understanding of that. You say, well, that wasn't instituted to the law. Be very careful. We're getting ready to find out that the first animal sacrifice indeed was directly after the fall of man. And of course, anybody who argues that has never read the story of Cain and Abel, or perhaps they just dismissed the story of Cain and Abel, but we know that um, Abel brought the blood sacrifice and Cain did not, because that's the kind of sacrifice that God requires. But the first, the very first of those sacrifices happened immediately post-fall, and we're going to take a look at that. Now, we can't just simply explain this away. Um, this is not a philosophical issue. We have tried, uh, I spent some time explaining that in the beginning, we have tried to make this a philosophical issue, and it is just not. It's just not. It's a biblical issue. How we answer this question is a biblical issue. It sounds great to have philosophy. It's good to be able to read philosophy, keep up with philosophy, and sometimes that is the kind of answer that is needed. Sometimes it works just to give the moral argument, to ground our moral values in God, and that works. But at the same time, we have to take a step back and realize that the, the way that the Bible frames reality— the way that the story is told about reality is uh, has everything to do with this particular issue that we're discussing today. If 
if if sin and death if death rather is the consequence for sin, then we're going to have to be able to fit that into the Bible timeline. It's going to have to make sense. And it's apparent that if death happened pre-fall, then death is not the result of the fall. I don't. See, I just don't see any way around this issue. Now, that's not to say that I haven't seen the arguments that are advanced against the issue, but I have never, I've just not seen it work yet. I've not seen it work with the biblical data. All right, now I want to deal with one more thing, kind of as an aside, before we dive into um, before we dive into my main line of argument here, and that's this issue of animal suffering, of animal suffering, um, and I want to kind of address uh, this view that um, William Lane Craig, Doctor Doctor Craig, has advanced, um, as well as his colleague, uh, Doctor Michael Murray. All right. Now, uh, let me just uh, start by saying this. Uh, probably Dr. William Lane Craig is one of my favorite apologists. Um, in fact, here in a few episodes upcoming, we're going to talk about um, his his uh, probably the, the argument that he is most known for uh, developing and advancing. Of course, it's not original to him, but he, he definitely uh, served to revitalize it. Um, here in this past century, and has done a lot of work on it. Probably his name is most associated with it, but it's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument, and we're going to be talking about that here in a little bit. Um, you know, probably not two or three days goes by that I don't interact with some of Dr. Craig's material. So let me just say, first of all, emphatically, that I'm a huge fan. However, I disagree um, big time with his views on the age of the earth. I think this is an issue where he tries again, and I'm sorry, but I think this is the case. I think he really tries to answer this question philosophically that is so much more easily answered biblically if we just are willing to hold to what the Bible teaches, all right? Um, and Basically, this view is that animal suffering is not akin to human suffering, because animals um, lack conscious self-awareness. All right? Uh, this is also, again, advanced and defended by Dr. Michael Murray as well, and he's actually got some articles on Dr. Craig's website about this thing, and even one in response to um, so, some, some critics for it. Now, I do have thoughts on this that I just want to reserve for another time. Again, I just want to get this issue out of the way. And I wrote this down uh, in a moment of clarity yesterday, so I just want to read it how I wrote it. Um, so as to make my point emphatically here. What is philosophically and or scientifically acceptable is meaningless, if not biblically supported. By the way, look up Colossians 2.8. talks about vain philosophy and the traditions of men. Now, I like philosophy. Philosophy is a good thing. Philosophy is not a bad thing. But what is philosophically or scientifically acceptable is meaningless, vain, if not biblically supported. Therefore, the proper way to address this issue is by considering what the Bible teaches about it. Now, this is a highly, again, contested issue. All right, to my knowledge, there is no scientific consensus on the issue of animal suffering. Uh, the current view, uh, as far as the, the research that I did on this, it seems to be that animals certainly experience physical pain. That's no question. They experience physical pain. And there is evidence that this uh, is experienced emotionally as well. Um, but this is not conclusive. So Dr. Craig 
and, and others, their argument would essentially be that they uh, are not emotionally aware of this uh, of this pain and suffering because they lack this um, this conscious self awareness. They're not aware of themselves in the same sense that we are. Um, but I think we could move the argument past this. Let's let's forget about suffering for just a moment because that that's a word that often comes up here in this issue talking about animal suffering. But um, I think the issue is more along the lines of of death. Now, yeah, we're going to talk about what it means to have a very good creation, and most certainly suffering, I think, would be absent from a very good creation. But uh, this issue of, of death is really important because I think in order for, for our argument to go through, for the young age argument to go through on this, all we have to do is have biblical support that animal death and human death are likened unto the same thing. If, if animal death and human death are treated the same way, biblically speaking, then it seems to me that we have a very good argument for no animal death pre-fall. Now, biblically speaking, then, uh, human and the soulless animal life are, are considered to be what the Bible calls uh, nefesh kaya, okay, or living creatures. Now, um, an AIG article points out uh, that based on the biblical definition here, we would conclude that neither algae nor phytoplankton nor zooplankton are living creatures, and therefore eating them would not constitute carnivorous behavior or death. We would conclude the same about krill and many marine invertebrates. So based on the research that they've done, we think that we can pretty confidently say that we're just talking about uh, the higher animals here, soulish type animals. And I think without trying to dive you know, too technical into this, I think we can all, common sense, think of what that might be. Um, I, I think we all can make a clear distinction between a lion and a phytoplankton. Okay, uh, I think that's there. Now, uh, Sarfati argues that plants are described in the Bible as fading and withering, not dying. And this, again, this is an issue that where Ross tries to, to, to go on the other end of it now here and say, well, well, well if, if, if animal and human death are the same thing, then what about plant death? Aha, isn't plant death the same as animal death and human death? Because plants die too, and plants, most certainly on our view here, died uh, pre-fall. So therefore, don't we have an inconsistency there? Um, by the way, Ross uses Exodus 10, uh, 12 through 17, Job 14, 8 through 10, Psalm 37, uh, verse 2, Matthew 6, 28 and 30, and John 15, 6. Ross uses uh, each of those uh, particular passages of Scripture to justify his claim that animal death and human death are treated the same in the Bible. However, Sarfati drills down into each one of these passages and shows that they actually support the young age view. They support the young age view that they w that they fade and wither, not that they die in the same sense. And plants in the Bible, by the way, are never treated as nefesh kayat. That terminology is is never used on plants in the Bible. 
After drilling down in each of those passages, Safari clarifies like this. So none of these cases support Ross's claims and rather support what CMI, Creation Ministries International, has always said. So look, look into this issue for yourself. Um, The clear teaching on this, the clear scriptural teaching on this seems to be that there is a distinction to be made between um, plant life and, uh, you know, certain bacterial life and marine invertebrate life, that there's a distinction biblically between those and between the higher soulish animals and humans, which are treated as the same kind of physical beings as far as death is concerned. So um, while I do think that animals suffer, uh, I I think that... um, there are actually very many who would disagree, very many secularists, um, and other, of course, Christians as well, but certainly many secular, secularists who would disagree with Craig and Murray's view on this. I've heard um, uh, some people speak out pretty openly against this, such as uh, Dr. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, who we dealt with uh, last week a little bit. But um, in any sense, this issue is one that is not secondary. Uh, when we talk about animal suffering, we need to understand that animals and humans are treated the same exact way. So even if we're not talking about suffering, if we extend the argument onto death and we look at the biblical view of human death and animal death versus what uh, vegetarianism would entail, we have an obvious difference. So with those distinctions having been made, Let's go ahead and uh, dive into what I would consider the main argument here. We're going to examine elements of the creation, of the fall, of uh, the flood, and also of the final restoration to find out if uh, what the Bible teaches about this matter of creation and predation. All right, so so let's first take a look at the matter of creation. And what we want to do is use exegesis here, especially with an issue like this. Uh, but in all cases, of course, we don't want to use eisegesis. That is, we don't want to read our own ideas into, into the text and, and make conclusions from there. That's not how we do it. We want to know what the Holy Spirit has written down through the particular writer he was using at the time. So let's look at um, Genesis 1 for just a moment. We want to look at verses 29 through 31. 29 through 31. And at this point, uh, God has been through the uh, previous um, five days uh, of the creation, and he is wrapping up on the sixth day. And at this point, uh, he has said, uh, Behold, um, it is good. The Lord said it is good. That, that, that has been uh, the way that he has closed out each of the previous days. And the Lord said it was good. All right. Now, starting at verse 29, we have this. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, or we could say food, right there. To you it shall be for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, 
Nefeshkaya, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. God said it was a very good creation. We're going to talk about that a little more here in a moment. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, a couple things going on right now. So we're talking about creation and and predation, uh, largely talking about this issue of vegetarianism. Um, and, and here's the deal. If you're kind of new to this, uh, here's why all of this matters. Simply because if there is death and suffering and disease, as we find in the fossil record, before the sin of Adam, then we have got theological problems out the wazoo. We have got issues. Ultimately, there's no answer, as we've been discussing, to the problem of evil, if this is the case. Because we believe that death and evil and sin and all of those things entered into the world as a result of the fall, as a result of Adam's sin, not a result of Satan's fall, at least not a direct result, okay? Adam is responsible for this. Satan's going to get his just desserts, so to speak, okay? But but this is Adam's curse. This is Adam's fall. By virtue of that, this is our, our fall. This is what we have to deal with. The creation groans, not because Satan fell, because we fell. And so the issue here also kind of ties in, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, to, to the issue of, of the Genesis flood. But if we have all of this, um, if indeed this earth is millions of years old, we've been here for millions of years, then we have to account for animal death and suffering long before the fall of Man, And we talked about that a few minutes ago, kind of looking at the issue itself of animal death. But remember, we're as far as we can see, um, we've done lots of research on this from the Bible. Animal life is considered by the Bible to, to die in the same sense that human life dies. Soulish animal life and human life are both considered nefeshkaya. This is not extended to um, what the Bible calls creeping things, necessarily. We think that, you know, we could consider um, uh, marine invertebrates in that group, uh, for example, all right, many of them anyway, all right, and then plants. Plants are not considered life in that biblical sense, like we talked about, okay? So algae, phytoplankton, uh, these things are um, um, just simply not, considered life in the same way that humans and animals are. So um, what we have here now is this very good creation. We have to ask ourselves is what is meant by very good? What's meant by that? Well, let's look at the, something that uh, Sarfati uh, clarifies on here. He says this, the Hebrew word uh, for good is tov and uh, very good is tov mehod, right? Tov mehod. Now, the specific context of Genesis 1 shows what God meant by tov mehod. The very good was uh, the culmination of the creation week. 
God had already pronounced things good six times. This is a clear indication of no principle of actual evil in what God had made. Actual evil, objective evil. Whatever was before the fall in that original creation, whatever was there, there was no intrinsic actual evil in the things that were there. Nothing was evil at all. Now, writers throughout church history have completely confirmed this view and affirmed this view. Calvin affirmed it. Calvin affirmed it. He says this, quote, On each of the days, simple approbation was given. But now, after the workmanship of the world was complete in all its parts and had received, if I may so speak, the last finishing touch, he pronounces it perfectly good, that we may know that there is symmetry in God's works, the highest perfection, to which nothing can be added. Wesley affirmed this view. Uh, by the way, that was the end of the quote there. So Wesley affirmed this view as well. Um, quote, when God created the heavens and the earth and all that is therein, at the conclusion of each day's work, it is said, and God saw that it was good. Whatever was created was good in its kind, suited to the end for which it was designed. Isn't that interesting? Adapted to promote the good of the whole and the glory of the great creator. This sentence, it pleased God to pass with regard to each particular creature. But there is a remarkable variation of the expression with regard to all parts of the universe taken in connection with each other and constituting one system, quote, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, unquote. But however this was, we are sure all things were disposed therein with the most perfect order and harmony. Hence, there were no agitations within the bowels of the globe, no violent convulsions, no concussions of the earth, no earthquakes, but all was unmoved as the pillars of heaven, close quote. Kyle and uh, Delish confirmed this view as well. Quote, God saw his work, and behold, it was very good. Uh, That is, everything was perfect in its kind, so that every creature might reach the goal appointed by the Creator and accomplish the purpose of its existence. By the application of the term good to everything God had made and the repetition of the word with the emphasis very at the end of the whole creation, the existence of anything evil in the creation of God is absolutely denied, and the hypothesis entirely refuted that the six days' work merely subdued and fettered an ungodly evil principle which had already forced its way into it, close quote. And then finally, Leupold also affirmed this view, quote, the writer says with emphasis that no imperfection inherited in the work of God had wrought up till this point. For all, uh, for after all preceding statements to the effect that individual works were good, comes this stronger statement to the effect that it was very good, making a total of seven times that the word is used. Seven being the mark of divine operation. If you know anything about Bible numerology, that's very important. The thought that God might be the author of evil and imperfection must be guarded against most strenuously. The behold moves the expression very good prominently into the foreground. Close quote. Look, the original creation was a very good creation. In it, there was no death of the nephesh 
Kaya because humans did not eat meat. You understand this. Humans did not eat meat and animals did not eat meat. We may talk about this more here in a moment, but it's worth noting right now that Ross, by the way, Hugh Ross, who this book is indeed written in refutation of, um, but he would affirm that Genesis one twenty nine does in fact teach human vegetarianism. This is his view. This is his view. But by his same logic, how does Genesis 30 not apply? Think about that. Think about that for a minute. Just, just think about the hermeneutics going on here. Remember, verse 29 says, I have, behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth and every tree which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Verse 30, and to every beast of the field and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life. Nefesh Kaya, I have given every green herb for meat and it was so. How the only way to distinguish between those two verses is if you already place what you know from what secular scientists have said, if you put millions of years onto the text and you know, so to speak, that the earth is millions of years old and that animal life is millions of years old, that is the only way you are going to make any differentiation between verses 29 and 30. That's it. That's it. That's all there is. So, I, I just want to point that out to my friends who, who don't believe this, this this way. And again, I'm, I'm not bashing you for that. Um, I, I want to show you the truth, just like everybody else, of, uh, of our position and what we actually believe, what we actually teach. There's much information out there, um, and much misinformation out there, I should say. Um, and there's also a lot of people who don't represent the young age view very well. Okay, well, that's there too. Um, but this seems irreconcilable. To, to me, if you have an answer for that, I've not I've not heard a good answer for this outside of the young age view. I don't I just don't think there is an answer for this. It doesn't make any sense. Um, not to mention we have a global flood described in Genesis uh, six and, and seven and so forth, um, which helps provide clarity, uh, much clarity on the fossil record. So so that doesn't even become a problem. And we've talked about that uh, before at length on this podcast in, in different times. So um, this, uh, as far as the creation goes, a very good creation seems that it applies. Um, and, and we can reasonably infer by the fact that there was no vegetarian or there was no um, carnivory rather pre fall. We're going to talk about the fall in a minute in the perfect creation. There was no carnivory carnivory. Um, there was no thorns, there was no disease, there was none of that. The original creation was very, very perfect. It was very good. Tov, mehod, very good. God's perfect number seven, the culmination of the other times, and the Lord saw that it was good. All right, the fall. The Bible gives a clear description of the effects of sin on the creation. Let's look at Genesis 3. Genesis 3. Common passage of scripture. Genesis 3, we're going to read from verse 13 to verse 21. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. 
And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of my wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Here it is. This is the curse. Because you have done these things, cursed is the ground. Is he talking about just the ground in the Garden of Eden? Well, that's not obvious to me at all. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. By the way, cursed is the ground. You'll eat of the ground all the days of your life. No mention of allowed carnivory here. We're still vegetarian. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. There it is again. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now here it is. And unto Adam and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. What do you have to have in order to make coats of skins? You have to have an animal sacrifice, don't you? The theologians listening might consider the principle of first mention found in the Bible. And, I, and this is not something that I'm, I'm going to argue for as, as a dogmatic thing, but I think it's worth considering that the first mention of animal death in the Bible at all is right after the fall. It's actually a result of the fall. They were no longer in blissful perfection here. It was no longer not all good, or it was no longer all good, I should say. Coats of skins were made, and he clothed them with them. The worldwide, all right, even cosmic effect of this is bolstered by Romans 8. See, it doesn't end there. Remember, we said cursed is the ground for thy sake, but it gets worse than that. Romans 8, 18 through 22 says this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Why? Well, for the earnest expectation of the creature, by the way, same word as the word creation that we're going to find in verse 22. The word creature there is the same exact word. So for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That is, those who were made new creations by God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself, the creation, the creature itself shall also be delivered from the bondage of corruption. If it's going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, what does that mean? 
That means it is in bondage to corruption. Think about that. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, or even to this day, we might could say. Now, the what caused all this? Why did they have to be clothed with, with, with animal skins? Why is the whole creation waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God? Why is the creature made subject to vanity? Why is, is, the, is, is the creation itself in bondage? Why does the whole creation groan and travail in pain? Sin, of course. Sin. Not the very good creation not as a result of the very good creation, as a result of the sin which entered into the very good creation. Romans 5.12 helps us out here a little bit. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, pay close attention to the way this is worded, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, no disagreement here. This verse references human death. That's the first objection that will be raised. You've already thought about it, and I'm answering it right now. This verse references human death. But it still makes clear where death came from. Sin entered the world by one man, and death by sin. That, that's the ball game. Sin entered the world, and death by sin. Yes, death did pass upon all men, but death entered the world by sin, and sin entered the world by one man. That's Adam. Uh, uh, Sarfati is helpful again right here. Quote, Paul calls death the last enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. All, uh, he has in quotes, misinterpretations of Genesis, which deny its plain meaning and so involve death before sin, must assert that the last enemy was part of God's very good creation. That's a good, pretty good point. Jesus made clear his thoughts on human physical death in the shortest verse in the Bible uh, in response to the death of his close friend Lazarus. Uh, of course, Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five. Especially since Jesus knew that he would soon resurrect Lazarus. This points very strongly to his knowing that death was an unmitigated tragedy and hardly something he would call very good, close quote. Now, this is not just talking about spiritual death. Understand this. The fall, when the fall happened, this is not spiritual death. Of course, there is a spiritual death, but everything going on there is physical, As, especially if you consider 1 Corinthians 15, which is kind of like Romans 5, uh, 12. Uh, it it kind of goes along that, that those same lines. It's talking about the entrance of sin into the world and, and the line of Adam versus the line of Christ. Um it states a similar truth in a similar way, but it is in the context of Christ's bodily resurrection, and it's talking about physical death. Uh, both Calvin and Wesley uh, provide very good historical justification for this view as well. For time's sake, though, we're not going to... Um, to read all that. Colson and Piercy write this, Every part of God's handiwork was marred by the human mutiny. At the fall, every part of creation was plunged into the chaos of sin, and every part cries out for redemption. Only the Christian worldview helps keep these truths in balance. The radical destruction caused by sin and the hope of restoration to the original created goodness. Close quote. 
And as already mentioned, it seems to me that if you're going to affirm the that Genesis 129 teaches human vegetarianism, uh, I, I see no textual support whatsoever for denying that about verse 30. In context, it must teach the very same truth about soulish animal life. Meaning that the fossil record is not is not a record of millions and millions of years of of of, of evolution or of uh, even of carnivory of natural selection taking place. That's not the case. It means we need to rely on the biblical flood account, just like the Bible says. We look at the flood and we say, "Look." This makes sense of the fossil data. Actually, we talked about this before, but it makes much more sense. I'd like to do a whole episode on that, I think. I think we're going to do that. But but it actually makes much more sense. The fossil record does. In principle, anyway. Um, then does the long evolutionary ages. And there's good reasons for that. And we'll, we'll talk more in depth about that sometime. All right. Let's look at the flood real quick. Just very quick, we're going to brush over this here. But it's very important. Of course, not only because of the way that, that, that indeed, if a global flood happened, then we can explain the fossil record. Most certainly. All right? Now, I, I see no good reason, especially if we're trying to be biblically accurate here, I see no good reason to put millions of years in Genesis and then have to result resort to a local flood. By the way, you can't have both. You're not going to get a global flood and millions of years and have the same exact world that we have today. That, 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 and this is why most people think the flood hypothesis is crazy. Well, they're not taking into account that we're talking about a much younger Earth, and in light of that, it actually makes a lot of sense. All right? But, but so you, you can't have both in concert. And so the options are to go with the straightforward pretty plain meaning here, and we get a young earth, and then we also have a global flood, or if we somehow try to get the millions of years into Genesis, well, now we've got to go back on the other side and do something about this flood. Now we have to, to, to make the language there, quite frankly, sound kind of ridiculous in order to get a local flood out of it. Um, not to mention the promise of God about not flooding the land. Um, I mean... To me, this is obvious. To, to me, this is absolutely obvious. God has absolutely decimated. Maybe we won't say God has, okay? Um, I don't want to make it sound like God is directly responsible um, in, a, in, a, in, a directly, in a direct causation sense, okay, for, uh, for a flood that maybe destroyed a particular area, some kind of local flood. Point being that local floods indeed have destroyed particular geographic areas. All right. But a global flood has never come again to destroy this earth. That means God has kept his promise. This to me just seems so simple. It, it seems to me in an effort to be scholarly, in an effort to, to, to I mean, I've seen people deny inerrancy over this. Uh, it seems to me like we make the Bible so complicated in order to read our ideas into it. Or if we just let it speak to us and tell us straightforward, if we just believe what it says, how much simpler would, would things be? Uh, all right, concerning the flood, Sarfati explains, um, quote, creationists have often pointed out that creatures affected were those the Bible calls nefeshkaya. We talked about that a little bit. When it refers to man, is often translated living soul. But of other creatures, including fish, 
it is often translated living creature. However, it is never applied to plants or invertebrates. Therefore, there is a qualitative difference between the deaths of the vertebrate adamant, uh, animals called nefeshkaya and plant death. This is further supported by the account of the flood and the ark. The living creatures, nefeshkaya, rescued on the ark did not include plants or invertebrates. And it's an, a very... Um, helpful here to realize this the vegetarian restrictions are lifted immediately post flood now I want to make a statement here that should be quite obvious but you can't lift restrictions that were never in place is that right why would God include this if it was already obvious why would, it, why would these restrictions have to be lifted? Genesis 9.3, post-flood, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb I have given you all things. Seems pretty simple to me. Finally, I'm getting ready to have to rest, uh, to, uh, to, to wrap up here. But finally, I want to talk about the restoration. The final restoration. We believe that things are going to be restored to an Edenic state one day. By the way, this is a locust that you can see in just about every movie, just about every TV show. Things start out great. Somebody messes up in the middle. Somebody has to come in and save the day, and at the end, things are restored. Every storyline. I mean, there's only a few different kinds. I've done research on this. It's actually a little depressing if you ask me, but um, there's a handful. When I say a handful, I mean like less than 10, like less than 10 storylines that every movie, every TV show, every piece of content, there's only, there's less than 10. I want to say somewhere between three to seven, I think. I forget the exact number. It's very small. It's very small. You're not going to find a piece of literature or a, 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 a or a piece of entertainment that ventures outside of a certain select few stories storylines and most storylines most storylines reflect exactly the nature of reality what uh, Greg Kokel I really like how he says this he calls it the story of reality that's a really good book uh, I've, I've enjoyed so the story of reality Everything's bad, or everything starts out very, very good. God creates a very good creation. It's perfect. Adam comes in. He messes it up. Death passes upon to all men. We are still living in that condition today. And then Jesus Christ comes in, rescues those who would be saved. And coming soon, we're going to have a restoration to a eternity in heaven an eternity spent, I should say, with Christ. And we believe that there is, to some extent, going to be an Edenic uh, future state. Let's look at Isaiah 11.6. Isaiah 11.6. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Continuing on through verse 9. And the cow and the bear shall feed. 
their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Boy, isn't that going to be good. Isaiah 65, 25 also speaks to this, says the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Sarfati writes here, quote, there are, uh, these are famous passages about a lion and a calf, wolf and a lamb and a vegetarian lion and, an arm harmful, and a non-harmful viper. Significantly, both passages close with indications that this reflects a more ideal world in the current world, does not, close quote. He asks rhetorically then, quote, a long-age scenario, one must ponder. In a long-age scenario, one must ponder. Restored to what? Billions of years of death and suffering, close quote. What ought we to be looking forward to? Dr. Machier Principal of Trinity College at the time of Safari, uh, Sarfati's writing, excuse me, uh, helps out here. Quote, there is an Edenic element in Isaiah's thinking. You can see it in um, chapter 2 and verse 4b. The life of nature itself is transformed. Verses 6 to 8 offer uh, three facets of the renewed creation of verse 9 is a concluding summary. First, in verse 6, there is the reconciliation of old hostilities, the allaying of old fears. Predators, such as the wolf, leopard, lion, and prey, such as the lamb, the goat, the calf, and the yearling, are reconciled. So secure is this peace that a youngster can exercise the dominion originally given to mankind. Secondly, in verse 7, there is a change of nature within the beasts themselves. Cow and bear eat the same food as do lion and ox. There's also a change in the very order of things itself. The, herbivor the herbivoral nature of all of the creatures points to Eden restored. Again, Genesis 1, 29 and 30. Thirdly, in verse 8, the curse is removed. The enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent is gone. Genesis three fifteen. Infant and weaned child have nothing to fear from cobra. And viper. Finally, in verse 9, this coming Eden is Mount Zion, a Zion which fills the whole earth. Peace, holiness, and knowing the Lord pervades all. Close quote. This to me is a remarkable case from the creation, the fall, the flood, and then the restoration. It seems to me that there is no way around this issue. This is probably one of the most difficult issues for views contrary to uh, the young age creationist view. This seems to be a pretty clear case. And so I just want to invite you to consider that today. Now there's still questions that we didn't get to answer here. and If you have questions about this, I'd be happy for you to go to the website and Submit those questions. That's steveshram.com. It'll be in the show notes, of course. Go there, and uh, you'll see a big blue button on the right side of the screen where you can ask a question and submit it with your voice, and I'm, I'm happy to, to answer that here on the podcast. Um, 
you know, what about viruses and pathogens? Where do they fit into this whole thing? Um, what changed exactly to allow for carnivory after the fall, right? Because we have, you know, lion with teeth, right, who uh, look like they were built to shred up other animals. Why create that? Was it even that way in the very beginning if everybody was a herbivore? These are interesting questions. They have answers. They have answers. We just don't have time to deal with them today. Um, but if you have any questions about this, please feel free to uh, to reach out to us and, and let us know, and we will be happy to try to answer those questions uh, for you. Uh, similarly, if you think you have a way that you can reconcile these passages with another view of Genesis, let us know. We'll take a look at those challenges. Um, but all in all, uh, things seem pretty clear here. It seems to me God created a tov mehod, a, a very good creation. Adam came in and he messed uh, things up. He ate of the apple because he listened to Eve who listened to the serpent. And Adam is the one who bears the responsibility. And because of him, God cursed the ground. And because of that curse, we now have the entire creation groaning and travailing in pain. It's just waiting until the day when it can be reconciled as well. The whole creation, everything in the creation. And we saw, of course, that sin was the responsible party. And death by sin and, this, and sin entered in the world through one man. I thank God that life can also be achieved through one man. God can make you a new creation. The Apostle Paul said, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. We're talking about a new life. We're talking about being made a new creation in Jesus Christ. He can do a work in you and he will perform it until uh, the final day. He'll perform it until the end. If he begins it in you. I think that's in Philippians. Can't remember exactly where. So I just want you to think along those lines. Why is it important that, you know, I mean, do we just, you know, do we just go on and on about this millions of years thing? Do we just, you know, cavalierly dismiss it and say, well, no death and suffering, you know, uh, in the original creation? We don't just make this stuff up. We're getting this directly from the Bible. Directly from the Bible. And it, it, look, this really does not appear to be a that's just your interpretation kind of thing. This seems to be straightforward. I, I really don't see another way around this issue. There's too much detail here. There's too much direct instruction here. The genealogies link everything too closely together. Adam is too closely linked with Christ. The curse on the whole creation is too closely linked with the sin and the fall of Adam. The first animal sacrifice we find in the Bible comes directly after the fall. God doesn't change the rules on how um, humans especially can eat and, 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 and eat meat until after the flood. And then in the final restoration, things are going to be restored to that Edenic-like state. So that's what the Bible teaches on this subject, creation and predation. If you have any questions, let us know. Again, we will jump on that uh, as soon as possible. Not sure exactly what we're going to talk about yet next week, uh, but um, 
if you have any ideas for for the show or anything like that, and I've got a list of ideas, uh, uh, you know, 100 miles long, so we'll figure out something. But uh, if you have a specific thing you'd like me to talk about and address, I, I would really love to know about that. Just email steve at steveshram.com. Steve at steveshram.com. And I'll put a direct link in the show notes where you can just click on that and it'll open up your email client and send me an email. Um, just put show idea in the subject line. Show idea in the subject line. And uh, let me know what you'd like us to talk about here. And we'll uh, we'll try to address those things for you here on the podcast. All right, let's close out with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you. And we want to say that we uh, bow humbly, and in honor of you and of your great mercy that you've shown unto us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in creation. I thank you that the heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. Lord, I, I want to say thank you for revealing yourself in our conscience. According to Romans 2.15, your, your law is written on the heart of every man. And according to Romans 1, it's so evident, Lord, to us that you are the creator that one day we will be without excuse. Father, we just love you and we thank you for allowing uh, your son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth and to die for our sins so that we might be reconciled to you. I'm thankful that even though the wages of sin is death, that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're undeserving of your goodness. We're undeserving of your grace. But that makes us ever more thankful for it. Thank you for allowing us to do this study. I pray now that you would help it to reach as many people as possible. Help others to share it, Lord. Motivate them to share it with others. And I pray, Father, that if we can just help in the changing of even one heart, in the changing of even one life, to draw themselves to their Creator. What a blessing that would be. I pray now that you would give us that sort of fruit for our labor, Lord. We don't do this for money. We don't do this for fame. We don't do this to get our name out there. We simply want to change hearts and lives for you. Pray now that you would honor that request, Lord. And it is in your name, the name of Jesus, the name above every name that we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this week here on the Creation Academy. And... Uh, We'll look forward to hearing from you, hopefully with show ideas, with questions, um, and we will see you right here next week, same time, same place. All right, thanks for joining us on the Creation Academy. Bye-bye.